0: morning brothers and sisters in Christ, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We're going to read from verses 1 to 11, paying special close attention to verse 6, which will be our focus. Hear now the living, inspired, perfect Word of God. What shall we say then? By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, our old man, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Pray with me. Father, we're so thankful for your word. Father, we thank you for your spirit who wrote your word, who spoke your word. We thank you for your spirit who raised Christ from the dead, for your spirit who gave us the gift of faith and united us to Christ. And now we ask for your same Holy Spirit to empower us. Strengthen us, Lord. Strengthen me. We have this treasure of the glory of Christ and your spirit in us in these jars of clay, in these broken bodies, so that the power might be seen to be yours and not ours. So do it for your glory, Father, that we may leave transformed more like Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. So this is the first of two sermons I'll be preaching in the next two weeks on sanctification. This week, we're going to look at definitive sanctification Next week, we're gonna look at progressive sanctification. Man, he's already getting into big words already. Well, definitive sanctification can be defined by our main point, our main idea, and it's this. In our union with Christ, we have been set free from the enslaving power of sin. In Christ, the enslaving power of sin has been destroyed definitively, once for all. And this is based on the fact our old man was crucified with Christ. That'll be our first point. And the purpose of that was to destroy the body of sin, which brings about this glorious result, our third point. We're no longer slaves to sin. And we'll look at some points of application Count this to be true. Consider this to be true. Well, this sermon is not disconnected from our time in Genesis. We've seen thus far in our Genesis series that God created human beings in his image for a worshipful, covenantal relationship with him to serve and worship him. But when Adam... Our representative sinned. He plunged himself and all of humanity into double trouble. A state of condemnation and enslavement to sin. When Adam, the team captain, sinned, the whole team was declared guilty. And the whole team is now in bondage an enslavement to the ruling power of sin, and we can't stop. So we're both guilty in Adam and a slave to sin in Adam. So if you yourself are still in Adam, you're in double trouble. Being in Adam means Adam is your representative, your team captain. God deals with you on the basis of his dealings with Adam. And you have both the legal or forensic result of his sin in the courtroom of God before God the judge. You're guilty and therefore deserving of being condemned in the lake of fire forever. You face the wrath of God. But there's also the behavioral result of his sin. Your desires are corrupted. They're dominated by the enslaving power of sin. And so the double trouble is both the guilt and corruption of sin. You see this in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 6, where we have in red the guilt of sin, and in yellow, the corruption The defilement of sin. And so we notice, by our first parent's sin, they fell from their original righteousness in communion with God. And so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. They, Adam and Eve, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed to us And the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, that's you and me, every human being, descending from them by ordinary generation. These are the works of the devil. This was his scheme and plot and plan all along. Satan tempted Adam and Eve so that they might be disqualified from fellowship with God as guilty sinners condemned to die, exiled forever from his presence, and for them to become slaves to the bondage and corruption of sin. And though Pastor John is on vacation, we still have, but God. God is, but God is with us in spirit by the Holy Spirit. But God promised in the covenant of grace, first declared in Genesis 3.15, that the offspring or the seed of the woman would come to crush the head of the serpent, which is to say that Christ would come to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3.8. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And so God's all-sufficient provision for this double trouble of Adam's sin that we are trapped in, apart from Christ. God's provision for the double trouble is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the gospel, God answers to both of the double trouble dilemmas with double grace. That's what John Calvin called in Latin, duplex gratia, double grace. In Christ, through his finished work of his perfect life, substitutionary death, glorious resurrection, and pouring out of the Holy Spirit, God provides all the rescuing grace we need for the double trouble. Justification in Christ. God answers to the guilt of sin, which we Read in Romans 5. But there's also sanctification in Christ, where God answers to the enslaving power of sin. Romans 6, which we'll be looking at today. Another way to put it is God's double grace, justification and sanctification, saves us from the penalty and the power of sin. When you think of justification, Think of being saved from the penalty of sin, the wrath of God. Christ taking that wrath on himself and imputing to us all his righteousness. But that's not the only aspect of the gospel. In sanctification in Christ, we're saved from the power of sin. And so when I talk to my children, and I talk to our kids in this congregation now, kids... Did Jesus just come to forgive you of your sin whenever you disobey your parents or you're selfish to your brothers and sisters? Did Jesus just come to wash away your sin? Or did he come, yes, to do that and to change your heart? To help you to stop being selfish and disobedient? It's both. Notice I said that both of these benefits are in Christ. In Christ. This is our assurance of pardon verse from 1 Corinthians 30. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, namely righteousness, there's justification, and sanctification, holiness, and redemption. The resurrected Christ is our righteousness, our justification. He is our right standing before God. God accepts us and looks at us and sees us as righteous as Christ is. But Jesus is also our sanctification, our holiness. He sets us apart from the power of sin or sanctification. These benefits of justification and sanctification, they're distinct from each other. We can't get them mixed up like the Roman Catholic Church has. In Roman Catholic doctrine, you're not justified until you actually are completely changed and become holy. In other words, your justification is your sanctification. It's all mixed up. These are distinct. Justification answers to the guilt of sin before the holy judge in the courtroom of God. And sanctification answers to the corruption of sin. It changes our desires, our habits, our lifestyles, our everyday actions and makes us more and more like Christ. But these benefits are inseparable. Even though they're distinct, you can't separate them. Why? Because they're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you have them both. You don't just have one or the other. They're equally yours by faith in Jesus. And the moment the Holy Spirit united you to Christ, you had justification, sanctification, at least in its definitive sense, which we'll look at today, the beginning of progressive sanctification, and adoption, and suffering, and the Spirit of God in you, and Christ himself. So in sanctification, which is our focus the next two weeks, Christ saves us once for all definitively from the enslaving power of sin in order that he may continue the process and the progress of progressive sanctification to more and more conform us into the image of Christ. So this brings us to our first point this morning. The fact that our old man was crucified with Christ." Paul, as a good lawyer, the Apostle Paul, yes, Paul Rich, great lawyer, Paul Rich, but the Apostle Paul, Paul Rich does not claim to be inspired, the Apostle Paul was, he anticipates the objection that if Romans 3 and 4 and 5 is true, that guilty sinners are declared not guilty but righteous in the sight of God, Based on nothing they've done, but completely because of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ? Well, this must mean let's wild out. Let's indulge in sin. Let's continue to live in sin. And Paul's answer is Romans 6. That's impossible because of union with Christ. In Christ, you're righteous. In justification, you're forgiven in Christ. And in Christ, you're set free from sin's enslaving power. And how did that happen? Well, Romans 6.6 tells us it happened in this way. Our old selves, our old man was crucified with Christ. I want to make several observations here on this first phrase our old man has been crucified with Christ. Notice, this is not a command. This is written in the indicative. It's a fact. This is what God has done in Christ. We are not told here to crucify our, our old self, but rather, we are told that our old self, literally our old man, our old anthropos, has been, past tense, Crucified with Christ. Fact. But notice also that the old man is singular. Who is the old man? It's not your dad. Well, where's the last place Paul mentioned Anthropos, man? Well, it's in the chapter before this. In Romans 5, verse 12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. What man is that? Adam. And then in verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made righteous, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So when you think of old man, think of Adam. Adam but notice it's our old man, our association with Adam. Our old man is our former identification in union with Adam, consisting of not only Adam's guilt, but the bondage of sin when we were dominated by the rule and reign of sin, death, and Satan. Ephesians 4.22 also mentions the old man, which Paul says belongs to our former, our old manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires. We have some clues in our verse. Notice that our old man is very much correlated and related to the body of sin that is enslaved to sin. What is the body of sin? The body of sin is the fallen human condition that uses the physical body as the means to sin. God made man and woman in his image as physical, spiritual creatures. And they're not disconnected in this life. The spirit, our spirit lives in a body and the way that our spirit and our soul and our heart desires to do things happens through the body, through concrete, everyday actions. So the body of sin uses body parts as instruments of unrighteousness. The body of sin is dominated and controlled by sin. Remember, God made Adam and Eve as temples themselves. Their bodies were temples and the body didn't stop being a temple at the fall. Now it's a temple of idols in Adam. In Romans 6 and in other places in Paul's writings, the old man is contrasted with the new man. So if Adam is the ultimate old man, who's the ultimate new man? Christ Jesus. Romans 6.4, Paul mentions being buried with Christ to be raised up in new life, just as Jesus was. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, that's the new man, they are new creation. Why? Because the old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. So for Paul... The old man is Adam, including everyone united to him through ordinary birth. And the new man is Christ and all those in him through the new birth. This is crucial for us in this day and age of identity politics, where we're told of all these various identities that we're supposed to cling to. But in God's sight, there's ultimately only two identities. And they're determined by your federal head, your team captain. Either you're in Adam or you're in Christ. Not whether you're in whiteness or in blackness or a person of color. Not even whether you're a liberal or a conservative or a Republican or a Democrat. Or even a Presbyterian or a Baptist. Either you're in Adam or you're in Christ. And notice that old man is defined by guilt and corruption, while the new man is defined by justification and sanctification. And Paul also uses kingdom terminology to break this down. In Adam, you're in the kingdom of Satan where sin, death, and Satan reigns. But in Christ, you're in his kingdom where his grace reigns, both for justification and sanctification. In Adam, you're a child of the devil. In Christ, you're a child of God. So what has happened to the old man? What has happened to our, our old man? It says it was crucified together with Christ. It gets X'd out by Christ. Or to put it, a better, put it a better way, and turn this X a little bit more, it gets crossed out by the cross. Our old man associated with Adam that was not only guilty before God, but dominated by the rule and reign of sin, has been crucified. That's something to praise God for. So this begs the question. Christian, are you still the old man? Or do you still have the old man? Professor John Murray is worth quoting here. Our old man is the unregenerate man in his entirety, in contrast with the new man as the regenerate man in his entirety. It is a mistake to think of the believer as both an old man and new man, or as having in him both the old man from remaining corruption or sin, so that when I sin, oh, that's the old man. And the new man from regeneration. This is apparent, this is clear, by the fact that old man has been crucified with Christ. And the tense indicates a once for all definitive act after the pattern of Christ's crucifixion. The fact, our old man was crucified with him. This verb, to be crucified with him, is in the passive voice. That means the old man did not do the crucifying. That would be the active voice. Nor did the old man crucify itself. That would be the middle voice in the Greek. But the crucifying is what happened to the old man. When? At the cross. When Christ, our representative, was crucified. Our old man was crucified with him. God the Father crucified the old man. One brother nicely put it. God killed me and gave me his son's life. God the father killed your old Adam self when Jesus was crucified notice this though it does not say our old man was crucified period our old man was crucified with him referring to Christ literally in the Greek our old man was co-crucified with Christ and this verb, to be crucified with, all one word, only occurs in a few places in the New Testament. And it's striking that it first occurs in the Gospels, like Mark 15.32, referring to the criminals who were crucified with Christ at Calvary. Well, what's that have to do with me, Tim? I was not there physically. True, we were not there necessarily, existentially in space and time. We were not born yet, but we were there at the cross with Christ, being crucified together with him spiritually through our union with Christ. How so? Because Jesus was there, and you're in him. And God the Father chose us in him before the foundation of the world so that when Christ came into the world, he lived not for himself, but on our behalf. When he went to the cross and was crucified, he was crucified on our behalf, representing us. Christ was crucified in everyone else in him. Everyone who'd put their faith in him, from Genesis to the return of Christ, was there being crucified together with Christ. When he died, we died. Paul puts this very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. That's Jesus. He's died for all. But who are the all? It's not every human. Therefore, all have died. If Jesus died for every single human, every human would be crucified with Christ and be set free from the power of sin, but that's not the case. The all that Christ died for died with him. Verse 15, and he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And this concept of being crucified with Christ so that you no longer live for yourself, but live for the one who died for you, comes again in Galatians 2.20, where we actually find the same verb for being crucified with I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh in this body that is I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me so I wanted to take an entire sermon to let the Lord cause this to sink through into our souls that our old self, our old man, our identification with Adam has been crucified together with Christ and that everything that Jesus did counts for us. And what he did in him, we did as well. So therefore, this terminology of with him, with Christ, Comes through over and over and over again we've been crucified with Christ we've died with Christ verse 8 we've been buried with Christ verse 4 we've been made alive together with Christ Ephesians 2:5 we've already been spiritually resurrected with Christ Ephesians 2:6 we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places Ephesians 2.7, we currently suffer with Christ, 2 Timothy 2.11, then we will reign with Christ when he returns, 2 Timothy 2.12, when we will be physically resurrected with Christ, Romans 6.7, and forever will be glorified with Christ. It's all about with Christ, with Christ, with Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, union with Christ. So much happened at the cross. God not only poured out his wrath on his son to take the punishment for our sins, but he also crucified who we were in Adam for this main purpose, to destroy the body of sin. We were crucified together with Christ at the cross for this purpose, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Again, the body of sin is the human body controlled by sin and enslaved to its desires. Verse 12 is helpful in the chapter where Paul commands Christians not to let sin reign as king over their bodies so that they obey the lustful desires and sinful passions. Paul mentions body of sin here, body of the flesh, Colossians 2.12, which is our old uncircumcised, stubborn dead in sin selves he mentions the body of death in Romans 7 24 but we notice what has happened to the body of sin the ESV says it's been brought to nothing notice how this word is translated in 2nd Timothy chapter 1 verse 10 to abolish God's grace has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished, same word, death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We've learned about wonderful abolitionists in our country's history who helped to abolish the horrors of slavery in America. But brothers and sisters, Jesus is the ultimate abolitionist who ended and abolished death and slavery to sin, and the body of sin once for all. This verb is also translated to destroy. I think my boys, my seven and eight-year-olds were like that. Yeah, dad, destroy. Come on. Destroy, yes. Notice Hebrews 2. Since, therefore, the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy same verb as Romans 6:6 6, 6. the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery for surely it is not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham this idea to bring to nothing to abolish to destroy is Paul's way and the other New Testament writers' way of conveying the truth of Genesis 3.15 that the offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ, has indeed come to crush the head of the serpent, to destroy the works of the devil. Death, which is the penalty of sin. Satan himself, which we see here, in the enslaving power of sin, the body of sin. This is such good news, brothers and sisters, that this is an aspect of the gospel. So when I get a phone call, Pastor Timothy, I fell into lust again, and I'm I'm in despair. I'm without hope. Brother, let me share with you the good news of the gospel. It's okay that you fell. Jesus forgives you and has washed away your sin. That's it? That's glorious, but what about the fact that he's destroyed the enslaving, addicting power of sin? That's just as much a part of the gospel. Jesus does not take the body of sin and remake it or remodel it or give it a makeover or cause the body of sin to turn over a new leaf. He destroys it. The destruction of the body of sin is final. And recall from last week that the crushing of the serpent's head came through the bruising of the Savior's heel. So what's the instrument that Christ used to kill the old man and to destroy the body of sin? It's the cross. Well, this raises another question. What kind of body do you and I have now? Us, Christians. What kind of bodies are they if they're not bodies of sin? Because I don't know about you, Pastor Tim, but I still got sin in this body. And my body has not been raised from the dead yet. And my body can get sick. And my body will die. All because of Adam's sin then what kind of body do I have? Christians have mortal bodies that will die where sin still lives in them, but our bodies are not controlled or dominated by the rule and reign of sin. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit of Christ who raised him from the dead lives inside these broken bodies this is a glorious mystery. It's the already not yet. Until Christ comes back to resurrect these bodies. There's resurrection life in the victory of, of Christ in these bodies. Sin does not control this body. Jesus does. And he enables us to use these bodies to worship God, to love To serve Jesus and serve each other. And that brings us to our third point. The result of Jesus crucifying our old man. The result of him destroying the body of sin is to set us free so that we no longer be slaves to sin. We know that our old man, our old self, was crucified with him In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing or destroyed so that here's the result we would no longer be enslaved to sin remember God created Adam as a servant to serve God as a priestly worshiper but when man refused to serve God man And woman did not stop being servants. The question is, who or what are you serving? The question is not, are you a servant? But who or what are you serving? Every human, Paul will say in the rest of the chapter, is either a servant of sin, which leads to death, or a servant of righteousness. You're either a servant of Satan or a servant of God. And the good news of the gospel is that although we were born servants and slaves to sin, Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in us, Romans 8-2. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And Paul wants to unpack this for us in the rest of the chapter. And notice this is not based on how we feel. This is not based on how your week went. But this is more indicative, more fact. Romans six seventeen says, But thanks be to God, not thanks to you, you didn't do it. Thanks be to God that you who once were slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart because God gave you a new heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become servants or slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal. Brothers and sisters, Christ has worked such a radical breach and break with sin that all of us in Christ can never actually truly love sin or be attached to sin again and live under its enslaving power. That's what the text says. Notice Paul says the result of us being set free from sin and becoming slaves or servants of God is that we bear fruit that leads to sanctification, verse 22. So now let's consider the dynamic aspect of sanctification, the two-folded aspect of sanctification, the fact that it has both a definitive and a progressive sense, We see this in the confession of faith. Why do we have a confession of faith? Well, what is it that we believe? Well, the confession lays it out. This is what we believe about sanctification. They, who are once effectually called and regenerated, that's us when we were born again, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified, really and personally, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. There's definitive sanctification. And then next week, this is an advertisement for next Sunday, make sure you come back. And the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified. And they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to practice true holiness. That's progressive sanctification, without which no man shall see the Lord. And so when we think of sanctification, think about sanctification as having two sides of one coin. Side A, that's definitive sanctification. The once for all breach with sin's enslaving power that happened the moment you were born again. When you were united to Christ, boom, you're set free from the domination and rule and reign of sin. But that sets in motion side B. Progressive sanctification. The Holy Spirit in you progressively, day by day, making us more like Christ through the means of grace. Prayer in his word, repentance, confession. Saying no to sin and yes to God. But we should think of side A as definitive sanctification because it's the once for all aspect. It occurred... Once for all, the moment you are united to Christ, just like Christ will not die again and be raised again, you have been crucified with Christ and raised with Christ, but also because it forms the basis and provides the power for the ongoing progressive sanctification. Summarize it like this. The reason we can daily put off the sinful practices that belong to the old man is because Christ has already crucified the old man. And I wish I knew that earlier in my walk because I knew I was forgiven. I knew I was a child of God, but I thought sanctification was basically up to me. Oh, had I known and it been clearer Sin no longer rules and reigns over me. And it's with the basis of that I can go forward and fight sin. One more John Murray quote. Last one. What the apostle has in view is the once for all definitive breach with sin which constitutes the identity of the believer. If we view sin as a realm or sphere, then the believer no longer lives in that realm or sphere. And just as it is true, with reference to life in the sphere of this world, that the person who has died passed away, but could not be found, so it is with the sphere of sin. The believer is no longer there, because he has died to sin. The believer died to sin once and he's been translated to another realm. What realm or sphere have we been translated or transferred to? It's the kingdom of Christ in Christ. Notice in Romans 6, 9 to 14, Paul essentially says, you are just as free from the dominion of sin as Jesus is. What? Let's read the text. We know that Christ, since he's been raised from the dead, will never die again, therefore, death no longer has dominion over him. Because the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also, likewise in the same way, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 14 For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Sin and death no longer has dominion over Jesus. So, also, count that to be true for you. Verse 14. Because you're in Jesus. You may be thinking, this just sounds too good to be true. Unrealistic. Triumphalism. What you're describing, Pastor Timothy, doesn't line up with my life, and I'm a Christian for this many years this is not the way my struggle with sin looks like. To which I would reply, I hear you brother or sister, but since when was the facts of the scriptures based on our feelings or our subjective emotions? When was the truth of God's word ever defined by our own experience? Our old man was in fact Crucified with Christ, setting us free from the enslaving power of sin. And so maybe the problem is, not that I have too high, or Paul has too high a view of definitive sanctification. Maybe it's we have too low a view of the finished work of Christ. And we've discounted what Jesus and his spirit have done for us. This is not perfectionism. If that was the case, Paul would not give us the command in verse 12 to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies to obey its lust. If that was the case, we would not have in the Lord's prayer to be taught to pray like this, Father, forgive us. But it is a being set free from the rule and the enslaving power of sin so that as Pastor Dale put it nicely in our Confession time. We don't have to give in. And so this brings us to our final point. At the end of the day, we must count this to be true. We must count this or consider this to be true. You may have noticed I had skipped the first few words of verse 6. We know that our old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be destroyed so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul wants us to know that. That's the first application. Know it. Believe it's true. Count it to be true. Consider it. To be true. Do you count or consider your justification? The fact that God declares you righteous, not guilty, forgiven all of your sins, and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Do you count that to be true? Yes. Who else counts it to be true? The living God. And this same verb, to consider or count, is used in Romans 3 and Romans 4 for God counting us righteous. Well, now Paul says, you need to do the math. You count and consider this to be true because it's true in the mind of God. Notice in verse 11, so you also must consider, you must count yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Application one, look at yourself the way God does, dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. Whether you feel this way or not. Application two, do not obey sin because you're not a slave to it anymore. Application three, pick a sin issue that you struggle with. What is a sin or what are some sins that so easily entangle you? You're not bound to it. And when you're tempted to it, the scripture is saying, count this to be true. Run to Christ, recall, consider, know this truth. I'm dead to the power of sin over me. I don't have to give, give in. Lord, help me by your same spirit who united me to Christ, empower me to resist the devil and he will flee. And if you sin, repent and turn back to Christ Which, by the way, you can only do that because you're set free from the enslaving power of sin. People in Adam cannot repent and turn to Christ. The fact that you can confess your sin displays that it does not rule and reign over you. Because to the unbeliever, they're unable to confess their sin honestly. We can confess it. We can turn from it. We can bring it to Christ and rest in who we are in him and get up and count ourselves dead to sin, a slave to God, and not to sin in Christ Jesus. Look to your union with Christ every day. See that Jesus is your justification. He is your sanctification. Your deliverance and freedom from the enslaving power of sin is just as true as the resurrected Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. God made him to be our wisdom that is righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In Christ, we have justification and sanctification. But best of all, in Christ, we get Christ. And so now, having established Union with Christ, let's go before the Lord to prepare our hearts for communion with Christ. Oh, Father, we could not have written this up. Father, even us in Christ who have been walking with you for 20 years, 30, 40, 50 years, we would not have written this script, Father. We thank you for the good news of the gospel that you not only wash us and forgive us and justify us, but you set us free from the bondage of sin and set in motion this glorious process of making us more and more like Christ. Father, help us to think upon our definitive sanctification that we've been set free from sin once for all. And just as sin and death can never reign over Christ, it can't reign over us in him. And so Lord, use now this glorious means of grace the Lord's Supper, to show us this truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.